1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us. I recently had the great pleasure, and it really was a tremendous pleasure, to talk with Toby Meyer-Fong about her new book, What Remains? Coming to terms with civil war in 19th century China. This came out with Stanford University Press in 2013. I'll just say right off the bat, I loved this book. It's a wonderful book, not only for the historiographical contributions that it makes, not only for the stories that it's telling, but also for the really beautiful and thoughtful way that it's written. It's not just um, a really moving story, a really interesting story, but it's also a story, or rather a set of stories, that's really a great, great pleasure, um, really a pleasure to read. So Toby was generous enough to take the time to talk with me um, at the Association for Asian Studies annual meeting in Philadelphia, and we talked about um, various aspects of what's a very, very rich story. The story takes us into the history of, and really the deep history of, the Taiping Civil War or the Taiping Rebellion in the 19th century in China. And the chapters successively introduce texts and bodies of various sorts, bodies and parts, living bodies, dead bodies, commemorated bodies, textual bodies, physical bodies, that emerge from the really fascinating archive that Toby has found, has put together around and from and within the Taiping Civil War as a historical object. That archive includes some really interesting illustrated sources. It includes memoirs. It includes gazetteers. And she's very, very careful um, in the book to tell us about not just the events that emerge out of these archives and the stories and the characters, but also to take us into and, and really to teach us, I think, really interestingly about the use of the richness of and the importance of some sources, some categories of sources specifically for understanding um, this context of history that we might not otherwise think to use or think to work with and or think to treat in the very rich way that she does, Um as sources of evidence for unearthing people, individuals, and also bodies and their stories in this period. So it's, it's an extraordinary um, accomplishment. It's a wonderful book. I hope you have a chance to read it. I can't recommend it highly enough. And I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. I can say I absolutely and without question enjoyed it. It was a real pleasure. And it was also a real pleasure to read the book. So enjoy. I'm here today with Toby Meyer-Fong to talk about her new book, What Remains, Coming to Terms with Civil War in 19th Century China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Toby, and thanks for meeting with me in the midst of a really busy Association for Asian Studies conference. I loved the book, and it's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you about it. It's really, really nice to meet you too, Carla. Me too. Um, So Toby, could you start us off as is traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field, and specifically did you come to work on Qing China?
0: Well, actually, um, I had been a high school student with a strong interest in biology and English. And right before I went off to college, I got the course catalog and I looked at the course catalog. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, if I major in um, pre, if I go with pre-med, I have to do calculus and chemistry. And if I don't go pre-med, I can take anything I want. And I realized that anything I want didn't include either calculus or chemistry. It included a lot of history classes. So I started signing up for history classes and um, taking things on subject matters that had been covered not at all not even a little bit, not at all, um, in my high school curriculum. And so I took History of the Soviet Union. And a friend of mine who was also taking that class said, you know, there's this great class that meets in this room immediately after. Why don't we stay? And it was Jonathan Spence's lecture class in Chinese history. And the way he did history really spoke to me. The fact that anything could be a legitimate primary source, including poetry and painting and... Novels, it seemed to me a really, and this was in the 1980s, so if you did literature, it was very theoretically oriented, right? Complet, it was the height of the um, sort of postmodern theory, which I wasn't interested in. So history seemed like a way to read all kinds of things in a whole range of genres and Mm -hmm. analyze them without having a heavy postmodern theoretical apparatus. And Chinese seemed both really far away and really close. And at the end of the year, my sophomore advisor said, if you're seri- at the end of my freshman year, my future sophomore advisor said, if you're serious about history, you need a foreign language, French and German or Chinese or Japanese. And I had just taken Professor Spence's class, or it was just wrapping up. And I thought it hadn't occurred to me that I could take Chinese. Yeah.
1: And so I signed up for Chinese. And it's it's so interesting because so many people that I talked to were brought into the field of Chinese history specifically by having a really inspiring teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really nice to hear that that was the case here as well. So, you ta- the, so the book that we're talking about explores the remains in many senses and many registers of remains, literally and figuratively. And we'll talk about many of those of what's typically known as the Taiping Rebellion in English, but we'll look at that and talk about that um, vernacular and vocabulary vocabulary as well. Um, and this rebellion or civil war, as I think we'll talk about, lasted from 1850 to 1864. So can you talk a little about a little bit about how you came to this topic um, and how you decided to write this particular book length object about this topic? So what, what brought you here in the trajectory of your research?
0: Well, actually, in a strange way, it's a follow up to my first book, which is about the scenic sites. It's about the construction of scenic sites in the city of Yangzhou in the aftermath of the Manchu conquest of China and how elite literary men built a built a landscape. Of famous sites that referenced the city's storied past as a way of gathering and coming together um, across a political divide between sort of people who who still, even after the fall of the Ming, saw themselves in relation to Ming history that Ming history and people who were not averse to the new regime, and they built and wrote about and celebrated these famous buildings. And the, the, the book looks at, um, several of these buildings. And, um, as I was finishing the book, I realized that someone might call me to task for not having looked at the last 19th century gazetteer for, which is a, a local history. And they, they come out at intervals. And, um, I had looked at the last Ming gazetteer and I had looked at all of the Qing gazetteers, um, through the 1810 gazetteer and I realized that you know, I hadn't looked at the 1874 gazetteer and some someone might call me to task for not having completed the job. Um, so and especially since I knew that the Library of Congress had the book and that the Library of Congress was a five-minute walk from my house. And so I thought oh, I can't embarrass myself by failing to look at the book. So I walked up the street, got the book, and I thought I'm gonna take a perfunctory look at this. Um, and wrap up the project and send it off. And I opened the book and I looked up all of my scenic sites and realized that they had been destroyed in the mid-19th century in the context of the Taiping Rebellion. And then being sort of addicted to, you know, once you have a gazetteer in front of you, you want to see how it's different from its predecessors and what makes it special. And so I started flipping through the book. Nothing's ever perfunctory, right? So I ended up in the middle, in the biographical section there was a section labeled loyal and righteous and it referenced a handful of people who had died in the Mingqing transition sort of during the context of the Manchu conquest and then it very quickly moves to a list of people who died during the Taiping Rebellion and how, the, how their deaths could be construed as loyal to the Qing Dynasty and I started just rough out translating these and they were so shocking because it basically gives you the the place and 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 the place of their death and how they died. So and so, such and such a status died by what means, and just this litany of names and how they died for hundreds of pages or what felt like hundreds of pages. And I thought, you know, I te- I've taught the Typing Rebellion. I've always thought of it in terms of um, the kind of kooky religious aspect of the Taiping Rebellion, because that's what interests students, Um, or I've seen it in the context of talking about it as an origin point of the communist revolution or as part of that historical genealogy leading to 1949. But I'd never really thought of the fact that it actually meant that huge numbers of people had lost their lives. Um, and of course, for the authors of the Gazetteer, the fact that they had that their deaths could be construed as loyal to the dynasty justified their inclusion. But aside from that, just the vast numbers of people who died, then you can readily imagine through a leap of historical empathy, the fact that those people had relatives, those people had children and parents, and, and then you realize the, kind of, the magnitude of the event, and I went, I found the notes that I took on that day and full of exclamation points. Someone needs to think about this. And then I realized that maybe I needed to think about it. And, and that's, so I wrote a proposal, um, and applied for grants and began thinking more seriously about how we would reconsider the event that we call the Taiping rebellion, um, from the vantage point of the, 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 the huge, and almost an incomprehensible level of death and destruction that accompanied that event. Right.
1: And you talk early on in the book about the importance of reframing this as, or from the typical English vernacular for this event, as I mentioned a little bit earlier at the Taiping Rebellion, and instead considering it as a civil war. Mm-hmm. And that really does transform how we think about what happened and how it happened and to whom it happened and what the consequences were.
0: Good. And it also actually makes it a le- less of this... Peculiar, exotic Chinese event. It also actually allows us to divorce it from our way of thinking about rebellion, sort of late dynastic rebellion, or not thinking of it only as a late dynastic. Rebellion comparable to the late dynastic rebellions of the Tang. It allows us to think about it in in kind of a more broadly comparative framework in relation to other civil wars that happened in the mid-19th century, including our own civil war. It allows us to kind of think of it in more humanistic terms rather than this peculiar thing that happens in late dynasties in China. But it also allows us to think forward toward other instances of mass death in the 20th century um, in China and beyond.
1: And that. Uh, speaking of these humanistic terms, and I'll also say for listeners, if you hear some ambient voices outside, it's because we're in this lovely New Books and East Asian Studies hotel room. And so sometimes we'll get some, um, I'm sure, some commentary from the hallway, uh, room service and, and such, and that'll just make it more exciting. But in the meantime, you just mentioned um, the importance of taking a kind of humanistic approach to this. And one of the things that you mentioned early in the book, and that really permeates the whole experience of reading the book, at least for me as a reader, was the effort to really try to encompass in some way or bring to the fore a range of voices mm-hmm. that we're experiencing and, and dealing with this, um, this series of events, this really dramatic and really violent series of events. And you talk early in the book about The ways that um, using certain sources or and kinds of sources that maybe typically aren't integrated so centrally Mm -hmm. into the story Mm -hmm. of this series of events was really crucial for doing that. So, could you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned um, already finding this gazetteer and the experience of that reframing how you thought about this event. Um, If you, we can talk a little bit more about gazetteers and or if there are other kinds of sources that you felt are in general terms before we get to the chapters. Really um, important in letting you access this range of voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear more about that.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, as a reader, I like books that allow me to encounter people across time and space, mm-hmm. that allow me to make connections and allow me to at least have some kind of window into people's life experiences. Because for me, I think that's what history is about. Um, but also just in terms of the kinds of source materials that I like to work with. Um, rather than approaching this as a kind of ar- looking for statistics in the archive or looking for statistics in gazetteers or trying to get a handle on numbers, I really wanted to find stories of everyday experience. And one of the, um, one of the things that's actually really striking about this event is that it produced such a large number of memoirs um, or I, I mean in English we would call them memoirs um, a substantial number of which have been edited into punctuated compilations by scholars in the mainland um, in mainland China um, one volume came out in, in in the 50s and another one 12 volume set came out in the 50s another 12 volume set came out in the last sometime in the last 10 years um, I think it's twelve volumes. Don't don't hold me to the science on that. <laughs> but anyway, volumes. it's a, multi, a, a very large multi-volume set, and these multi-volume sets are divided into um, typing typing texts, materials from the Qing side, and foreign materials in translation, and. I mean, the 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 material from the Taiping side has been extensively made use of by scholars in China. The material that gets are labeled by librarians and archivists and compilers as Qing side actually includes um, a wide range of material that's not explicitly located on the Taiping side. Um, Actually, one of the things that I found in doing this research, I should probably put this right out there, is that our desire and the desire of of Chinese scholars and desire, I think, of everybody. We like stories where there are good guys and bad guys. And we like the, you know, if there's a clearly identified good guys and bad guys, a fun way to tell the story is to reverse it. But one thing that I really left this research feeling is that there weren't good guys and bad guys. There were People with a very large range and spectrum of motives. There were people who changed sides for very opportunistic reasons. Um, that the typing were not heroes, and that there that people at the time were very profoundly aware of the extent to which the 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 people involved in the fighting were not. Hardcore typing versus hardcore Qing. There were, and there were a range and a spectrum of fighting men fighting for mm-hmm. different people, different organizations in different moments. That the boundary between soldier, bandit, and rebel is extremely permeable, mm-hmm. and so that means that the, you ha- you can't easily categorize your source material into these, you know, the Union, Confederate, and Foreign journalist. You can't say Taiping Ching Other um, as easily as we or they would like. Um, but the sources included memoirs, diaries, poems, paintings, um, maps, um, gazetteers, morality books. <laughs> um, a huge range of different kinds of material that wouldn't normally all be coexisting in the same kind of study. And actually, that keeps it exciting as a researcher Mm -hmm. um, because you get to work with a whole lot of of different stuff. And sometimes
1: just figuring out what something is can be an exciting part of the research. Which maybe brings us nicely into the first chapter um, because some of these sources actually are really exciting for the reader as well. And one of them is front and center in, um, or the second chapter, rather, words we have already talked a little bit about the introduction. So chapter two centers on a figure, Yuzhi, who was a preacher and writer who claimed to represent the Qing to the populace and over the course of the story of this chapter we really see him and his understanding of an experience of the Taiping really changing over time mm-hmm. and this is manifest in some of the materials um, that are really, really fascinating that you show us that he's producing through this chapter. Um, so to start us off, because I think we're going to spend a little bit of time on him because he's so interesting. Could you introduce him for us? Um, Who is this guy and what do we need to know about him before we understand what he's producing? Sure.
0: He's a a five-time failed examination candidate from uh, Wuxi Prefecture or from the Wuxi area. And he Rises to extraordinary prominence for someone of his relatively humble elite beginnings. Um, In some ways, he's a he. In some ways that I don't entirely speak in the book, I just kind of put it out there. I see him as in his trajectory as being the approaching equivalent in some ways of the leader of the Taiping rebellion himself, right? They're both failed exam... I mean, people put out there all the time, one of the standard lines is that Hong Xiuquan rebels against the dynasty because he failed the examinations, and I've always wondered about that. Was, there, More people fail than pass, but not all of them have religious visions and think they're the son of Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> so what about, you know, the, and we never admit the possibility that there's someone out there that fails the examinations repeatedly and yet still defends the dynasty and defends the moral vision that undergirds the, the, the Qing ideology, really, Qing political ideology. And um, he is someone who... I mean, and, and we were talking about this before, actually, Carla, is, you know, I thought, oh, I found this person that no one's ever heard of. But actually, he's not totally unknown um, in the Chinese scholarship. He becomes sort of emblematic of the sort of post-Tai Ping organization organization, you know, uh, articulator of a philanthropic vision. He becomes the kind of prototype of the kinds of Jiangnan philanthropists that like Catherine... Um, Edgerton Tarpley Edgerton talks about in her book Tears from Iron, which is actually Tears from Iron is, is Ironman's Tears. Um, it's because she his his disciples actually wrote a book that um, is quite similar to the one that I look in at in my chapter to help people to to, to um, mobilize phila- philanthropy in Jiangnan to help the famished during the um, strange famine of the late 19th century using visual materials. Okay, I'm going off the rails here, right?
1: No, no, that's no. Right. No, um So that for listeners who don't know what this tears and iron reference is um, to, one of the texts that is really fascinating that um, is a centerpiece of this chapter is an 1864 illustrated pamphlet called A Man of Iron's Tears for Jiangnan. And um, so to, to get to that, what we need to, or what readers maybe, or listeners need to understand is this is happening. He's living, he's working, he's having these experiences in a context where the written and spoken words are really, really important culturally, mm-hmm. socially, and materially. And um, maybe that's where we should start to bring us into um, A Man of Iron's Tears for Jiangnan. You talk in the book about this fascinating set of um, endeavors, um, societies organized to collect and dispose of paper properly. There's this environment of um, sort of revering the written word. Mm-hmm. And also being concerned with its pollution that he's sort of part of and he's growing up in. And in understanding his role in this, you show us that it's not only the written word that's really important, but also the spoken word um, that's particularly important to him. So can you talk a little bit about that, his his interest in... um, well, maybe I'll just mention that and we'll move to the text because I really want to talk about this text. Okay. So basically the way to understand you, at least from the perspective of this reader, right? He's also coming out of this context where the written word is sort of talismanically mm-hmm. important. And he is envisioning this sense of community as you put it in the book, which is constituted through and bound by the spoken word. Mm-hmm. Speech is a kind of medical supplement. Um, the word is important here. So specifically we see this transformation, um, from his interest in kind of thinking about um, violence in the Taiping as sort of punishment and retribution for, um, decadence. decadence, exactly decadence. To, um, you know, the Taiping then comes to his home province and things kind of change for him a little bit and uh, this work Man of Iron," Tears Je- for Jiangnan comes out of this so can you talk about this work um, in this context um, what's groovy about it and how is um, what do we need to understand about this work to understand the larger work that you're doing with well, it actually the, the chapter comes out
0: of that book or that chapter comes out of a chance encounter with that book and mm-hmm. um, I found, I was starting to collect material related to the Taiping and I was in China and I was in the Beihai branch of the National Library of China and I pulled all of the materials that were produced, all of the materials um, that might have a connection to my project and I was flipping through and I thought, oh my gosh I have an illustrated history of the Taiping and I wrote to the Library of Congress and said, do you have this? And they said, oh yes, we have it. And so I kind of put it aside and I got back to to Washington, and I looked at it more carefully, and I thought, oh, this is amazing, this illustrated history of the Taiping. And the pictures are really compelling. We seldom, I think, we, meaning people working on sort of elite visual culture in China, you seldom see vivid, direct representations of violence. And the pictures are vivid Direct representations of violence and suffering. And so even without looking at the words, you could see that this was going to be an important text. Um, It was published under a pseudonym, so I didn't know who wrote it. Uh, But when I was um, at another library, I think it was at Columbia, I looked up the title to see if they had more information about the book than was on the card at the Library of Congress. And... I I think that's the sequence. And then, um, anyway, I discovered that the, the cataloging at Columbia included the piece of information that the pseudonym was, in fact, a man named Yu Zhi. Mm-hmm. I went back to Washington, discovered that the Library of Congress, in fact, had Yu, uh, Yu Zhi's um, chronological biography. It had his collected works, and it had the from mm-hmm. Jiangnan. And at that point, I thought, oh, that's a really that that's something that you could get your teeth into right so i started going through his essays i did a rough out translation and as i was reading i realized that this wasn't an illustrated history of the taiping it was in fact kind of like a morality book and that in fact it was a fundraising text and that in fact it had multiple texts related to the taiping events in in the back that included a kind of call and response um, statement about how this was retribution mm-hmm. uh, that had this incredible, I mean, call and response, it sounded revi- like if you read the text out loud, it sounded like a revival meeting. Mm-hmm. And the more I read about Shanshu, about morality books and philanthropy, I realized that it was part of this larger constellation of religious ideas that could be read as a response to the Taiping mm-hmm. Um So in in that sense, it was through an effort to solve the mystery of what this text was and who this man was that that chapter came into being.
1: It's a fabulous chapter and it's, we see this really, again, this really interesting, um, among the, the many other really fascinating things about this book and the chapter, we see this really interesting interplay here between image and text, mm-hmm. because you show us some examples where there's one where there's an image of, you know, violence and destruction and bodies being, you know, that are, you know, dead and dismembered on the foreground and then in the background, people reading a text on a wall, and that's almost like just as important as the centerpiece mm-hmm. of, so the interplay between between text and image for anyone interested in that aspect of Qing sources is also really interesting. Here. And actually,
0: as you were talking about realized I call the chapter words and he's interested in the spoken word and the written word, but he's also interested in the power of pictures. I mean, there's a reason that the text is illustrated. He believes in the mobilizing power of words. But in a sense, the audience for wor- he sees the audience for words as as limited, mm-hmm. and he places a very strong emphasis on the pedagogical function of pictures. And so we can see the ways in which the the illustrations, which are so stunning, if you come to them out of um, sort of elite visual culture, mm-hmm. it seems so strange. But if you come at it from the vantage point of thinking about illustrated um, primary school primers, for example, or um, Illustrated texts that are designed to teach people how to be filial or teach people how to to, to provide people with models for moral behavior. In point of fact, it's in that lineage, not the other lineage.
1: And it also, um, the the nature of these illustrations, which do include words and bodies, brings us really nicely, I think, to the next chapter. Um, because the book is very much um, a celebration of texts and sources and words, but it's also very much concerned with the bodies, mm-hmm. uh, material, physical, living and dead, uh, commemorated and not, that are making up this landscape.
0: Yep. And actually, I think of the I think of the book almost as
1: three chapters about bodies framed by two very personal case studies. Yeah, I can completely see that. Um, and that works really well. So the bodies in chapter three are marked bodies and they're marked Mm -hmm. in terms of, um, physical markings on the flesh. They're marked by their hair. They're marked by their clothing among other things. So you look, um, as part of the focus of this chapter, at the ways that, as you put it, wartime identities were formed and were also experienced and apprehended through tattoos, through hairstyle, and through clothing. So this is a fabulous um, kind of set of case studies for anyone interested in the history of bodies, identity, appearances, mm-hmm. um, and, and the, the very real political, social, and personal life and death consequences thereof. So let's talk about that um, for a few, for just for a little while. Tattooing. Um, this is a really sh- uh, striking part of this story. So can you talk about the importance of tattooing in this yeah. context?
0: Actually, it's really funny because these are things that I didn't think that I needed to know about, but it turned out, I mean, I ended up learning a lot about, um, specific practices, bodily practices and ways of thinking about living bodies in the chain as a result of the research that I did for this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the tattoos, Really, I mean, it's interesting how so much of the so much of the book comes out of being haunted by something that you find in a source, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you come back to it later. But there is an image that just won't let go of you. So when I was in the Shanghai Library, I called up a text, a, a set of materials that, that that turned out to be a manuscript of material related to a militia in southern Jiangsu Province. Um, that had fought the typing and it was the, their constitutional documents or how they got started their communications with other with, with uh, I believe with other militias and then a set of interrogations of captives that basically consisted of description of how they picked someone up on the road. They identified them and then let them go with Qing papers, mm-hmm. um, which is itself a kind of complicated phenomenon we're thinking about, but they pick up this guy and he has the words typing heavenly kingdom tattooed on his face. No, mm-hmm. And what? What? I thought about that. Like how do you ever go home again? Know. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens after the war ends? Mm-hmm. And just the visual image of someone with characters inscribed on their face. And then popular. thinking, uh, yes, yeah, and then yeah. thinking about like what the face means. And thinking about all of the the times you see in text like if some if you do something if you're falsely accused, how would you have the face-to-face society? So the the significance of the face as as the self that you present to the world, and to have that marked, and and the, the idea that tattooing is permanent, it's also associated. I, I I learned in the course of doing the so anyway I I, I, I translated many of the descriptions of the people that were picked up on the road and let go. And I kind of had a feeling that that was a significant source in its own a signif- would be a significant set of sources. But when thinking about it months later, I realized that the, the image that really stuck in my head was the image of this poor guy yeah. who gets picked up by a militia and he's got the words typing heavenly. You know, and ultimately they, they decide that even though he has these words on his face, he's an okay guy and they let him go. Um, But what are the consequences of that encounter? We can't know. There are a lot of things that we can't know. But what can we know Mm -hmm. about this person's experience, generally, not specifically about this person? And so I started doing research on tattooing in Qing society. Mm -hmm. And actually, I didn't start the tattooing on Qing, in site. I realized that in a lot of my other sources, especially the foreign sources, which are, are easy to kind of flip through, mm-hmm. they almost reflexively mentioned the fact that they saw people with the words typing Heavenly Kingdom tattooed on their face. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized that many of my Chinese sources were also referring to having these encounters. Um, and then there's that stunning example in Li Gui's book, of his encounter, his own encounter with the tattooist, which is incredibly dramatic, maybe even dramatized, mm-hmm. um, his anxiety about potentially being tattooed, um, and then I realized, so I, I realized this loomed really much larger than I, I had imagined mm-hmm. um, in the primary source record. And so I thought, okay, I need to follow up on it, and I started doing research on, on tattooing as social practice in the Qing more generally, and. Um, Coming up with a context for understanding what this meant
1: and it's interesting on so many levels I mean not not just because it's just a, an extraordinarily striking practice and from the perspective of the person being tattooed and you, you mentioned um, in the chapter that uh, captives who try to escape are the ones are, that get marked exactly but also I mean for from a, a different way into this set of issues as well it really complicates what we think of as the history of inscription mm-hmm. because if flesh can be a medium of ins- or a, a medium on which inscription of text is also you know an important part of this history then it, it changes how we think about the history of inscriptions. Well,
0: just as a juxtaposition, right, the, one of the most famous stories of loyalism, loyalism is UFA the southern, the southern Song loyalist, famously has text tattooed on his face. So you have people that are marked loyal and disloyal, marked criminal and loyal. So yes, thinking of the human body as a vehicle for the manifestation of words.
1: Right, And so in the chapter, there's a ton of cases in here that, you know, we won't have a chance to talk about all of them. But I, I want to highlight just one other for listeners because it's such a fascinating part of the story. You talk about clothing being really important. You also talk about the importance of hair mm-hmm. in this context. And that, um, because your description of hair in this chapter kind of brings to the stage new kinds of characters. Itinerant barbers and mm-hmm. sort of thinking about hair is not just, you know... Perhaps a lot of us, when we read accounts of hair, when we think about hair and we have a vision of hair in the Qing, it's the vision of you know the shaved pate and the Q. Mm-hmm. But hair in this chapter is changing. It's growing. It's, mm-hmm. it's got a life. It has movement. It really activates what we think of as... Hair as not just being this flat, two-dimensional image on the page of the shaved pate and the and the long queue. Um, it really
0: moves this. Well, a- it also puts the shaved pate in time because maintaining the shaved pate exactly. Because, especially so and, can we talk and, about that in this okay. context? Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you're right. We think of the shaved pate, done deal, mm-hmm. right? But your pate doesn't stay shaved, right? It requires constant policing in order to m- maintain its smooth texture. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds banal, right? I mean, men have to shave their faces every day to maintain their smooth skin. But, you know, so in ordinary times, it doesn't matter that much. It's part of daily life maintenance and personal hygiene. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a time of political crisis, when after all the rebellion, the, the, um, the Taiping side gets referred to as, the, they're called the hair bandits, Right? And it doesn't mean they let their hair loose. It means they let their hair grow. I think that, that's a common misunderstanding. It's that they—it's not that they loosened their braid. It's that they didn't shave the foreheads. And so it's the, the image of sort of sprouting hair on the forehead that marks one as a typing, not that you loosed the braid. And that, that was actually something that I was surprised to find because we're conditioned to think of it as they let their cues out. It's not that they let their cues out. It's that they let their foreheads grow. Um and you see in the primary source text the references to, to how many inches long the hair on the forehead had grown as being a mark of the level of commitment to the Taiping or that how long the area had been occupied. And again, the striking image that this started from for me is there's a, a, a very kind of, very literary and, and, and dramatic memoir of, of the of, of, of um, one man that gets gets published somewhat after the after the events, but he it's it's his his memoir of his experiences and his almost his adventures during this period. It's, so it's 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 not a tra- it's not um, it's a it's got the background of tragedy, but it's the story of, of his life experience in the foreground. And um, there's there's a, there are references to to people who have to um, there people going to Shanghai to do business and they need to shave their head, but then they need to go home again and they need to let... So, like, situating this in social time, situating hair growth in social time, realizing um, that in a a time of political instability where territory is passing from um, Taiping to Qing, and vice versa. And when people in order to carry out the business of everyday life need to move through territory, carrying the right papers and with the right hairstyle, you realize that that actually adds a level of, uh, of challenge to, to everyday experience. It's not, it's, it's, it's part of, part of that everyday life. That's right. Thank you.
1: So not only um, do we have living bodies that are growing and changing, we also have dead bodies in this story. <laughs> and those dead bodies are also um, being broken down into parts, um, in some cases, and there are they are changing and mm-hmm. they are taking on different kinds of significance. So chapter four looks at what happened to dead bodies in Jiangnan, and it asks, or it, it kind of opens up a series of questions and starts responding to those questions, including you know, where were the dead bodies put? Um, who Actually, that
0: was one of the starting questions for the book as a whole, right? If there are 20 million, 20 to 30 million dead bodies, what does that mean in terms of social practice? What do you do? And especially in, 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 a society that places such a high val- high importance on modes of burial and commemoration right
1: exactly and when you, this is again um, one of the many ways that the book takes what might be on the page just a number that we think about on reflex just like you know thinking about the shaved plate is just static and really bringing it to life and bringing death to life in a really material everyday sense so when you have thousands or tens of thousands of bodies and their bodies of husbands, of wives, of children, mm-hmm. of loved ones, and they are physical and they are there and they take up space. What do you do and what did they do? Um, so the chapter really looks at. Not just, as you call it, the um, political symbolism of corpses, but also the materiality of Mm -hmm. corpses and the ways that they change. So um, there are many things in this chapter that are happening. There are corpses being dismembered and um, taken and being sold possibly as food in markets. Mm -hmm. There are also courses that are are corpses that are being miraculously preserved. Um, so let's talk about, um, let's talk about human flesh in markets just briefly cannibalism. Um, I, I mentioned this because this tends to be, um, it, there's a way of treating cannibalism in Chinese texts that's very sensational mm-hmm. and that's not what this book does it's right. not what this chapter does so can you talk about the importance of cannibalistic practice um, in the in the context of this book and kind of your your approach to that and the what you were trying to do with that here and how maybe that's you know complicates how we think of cannibalism in this history yeah
0: that's a really that, let me think about that for a minute because actually that's that's the material that I think people found mo- most uncomfortable when I presented it before I wrote the book kind mm-hmm. um, cannib- of I mean with good reason cannibalism makes people feel uncomfortable and there are sort of theoretical expectations that need to be met with regard to cannibalism because you know in, in sort of the the, the, par- the standard line on that is that you know, cannibalism is something that foreign observers impose on other societies and it, it seemed to me, in, and and so, and what do we mean when we talk about cannibalism in China? But looking at the primary source record, it seemed to me that cannibalism was being used in two ways. That it really very much, and actually, the 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 whole the whole set of discourses on around dead bodies more generally and cannibalism specifically is a kind of moral political. It has it, 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 it operates in a moral political register. Mm-hmm. Right, so it ta- it, it's a way of m- measuring how bad to talk about cannibalism is to talk about the total moral breakdown of society or the near total moral breakdown of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and it fits into larger discourses about filial piety and loyalty and and sort of the what a, what a well functioning society would look like and cannibalism becomes a mechanism for talking about the the obliteration of moral norms and total political and moral breakdown. Um, And so you see the ways in which um, anonymous stories and rumors of cannibalism function in that way. Um, On the other hand, you also see references to survival cannibalism that are appearing in places where the, they don't have that heavy moral weight attached to them in a kind of matter of fact way. Someone records in their diary that human flesh was for sale at a certain price. Interestingly, um, as one of my colleagues pointed out, if there are markets functioning, that signals that it's less than total breakdown Mm -hmm. because you, you know, in order for a market to function, there, there has to be a, at least a modicum of social order. So it's a, that, that is a sort of strange aspect of, of the way the stories get told. Um, so you, you, you get it really in two registers. One, as sort of a practical matter of fact, human flesh was for sale in the markets, or you get the this is a signifier of how terrible things were. And you see that, for example, in Uterus um, Tears for John 9. Um, text. There's an illustration of human flesh for sale, and it's something that has a place of origin. People from Yixing specifically, are accused of eating human flesh, and then the practice spreads. Um, so it, that's very much in the
1: moral register. Mm-hmm. It's, in the, it's in the moral register, but um, at the same time, one of the things that I really... Really love about the way you're treating cannibalism and cannibalistic practice in this book, and this is coming from someone who's written about cannibalism and you know in the Ming um, or in Ming texts, is the book really changes at least changed for me the way I think about that because it's not just presented in the book as you know cannibalism ism 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 <laughs> like the moral it's a set of material practices right. that are written about in terms that are related to. Markets um, mm-hmm. to butchery. I mean, when you have an an illustration of someone physically butchering right. meat, that's a, just a very different way into this um, this history that doesn't, um, you know, put it in ex- these ex- necessarily explicitly isms kind of terms.
0: Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, I think for me, one of the things I really wanted to do with the book mm-hmm. is to take this set of events that has been forced into isms. Mm-hmm and put it back in the realm of everyday experience and practice because those everyday experiences and practices animate the primary source record. That's right.
1: That's right, and so not um, so to sort of get further into the descriptions and discussions of bodies, you also talk about, and I won't ask you to talk too much about this um, purely in the interest of letting you get back to the rest of the conference at some point later on today. Um, but you do, I will mention you do talk about um, cases of and, and accounts of miraculously preserved bodies, and so mm-hmm. I mention this because for listeners who may not think of themselves as inherently interested in change. China, but who are interested in stories of preservation of the flesh saints' bodies, Mm -hmm. relics. This is actually a really interesting... Point
0: of comparison. Point of
1: comparison, exactly, um, in really, really interesting ways, both in terms of the language used, but also in terms of the kinds of accounts. It's also really striking to me the ways in which religious ideas permeate
0: people's responses to these events, Mm -hmm. because I think there's a tendency to frame this as typing religion versus... Something else, but seeing the ways in which the the ways in which people mm-hmm. responded to these events using religious vocabularies. So, right. preservation of the body as a political religious response, but also at these events. I think. I mean, we there, we tend to think of. Chinese conservatism or Confucian conservatism as something that goes way back. But I think that the kind of... There there are ways in which these events transformed and conditioned late 19th century religious, political, moral ideas that we consider under the rubric of Confucianism. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the post-Taiping period is a very particular... Or the post-typing version of Confucianism,
1: mm-hmm. and I'm
0: using flash quotes here, but you right. can't see them.
1: Right, We're scare quotes. Um,
0: it's very much a product of the backlash against typing iconoclasm. Mm-hmm.
1: Great, thank you. And, and it's another really important way of reframing the way, as you mentioned, um, or as you've alluded to, we typically think of the Taiping rebellion, right? Those religious, those
0: religious. Either if you think of them, those Christians or those, you know, sort of iconoclasts or, you know. Exactly. That, that freakish man who thought he was Jesus Christ's exactly. younger, younger versus brother versus rationality. rationality. Exactly. And there are ways in which the very category of rationality is itself problematic. Yes. And there are ways in which we we need to remember that Chinese elites had religious lives. That's right.
1: That's right. Um, And so this comes up in this chapter um, in the case of these preservation of flesh and also in the case of, um, and I won't um, ask you to talk too much about this because just so that we can move on to the next chapter, but... There's also a really interesting treatment of philanthropic organizations mm-hmm. that take over the project of burying the dead. And so you talk about the implications of this and the implications not just locally but also dynastically. And this interplay and this sort of co constitutional relationship between the local and the dynastic is very much something that takes center stage in the following chapter. So let's turn to that. What do you think? Chapter five focuses on efforts to commemorate the dead um, in wood and in ink, in shrines that are actually built structures and also in books. And you talk about the various ways um, in which post-war commemoration of the dead was really crucial um, and crucial in particular for local communities. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a really nice place to pull out this this aspect of the book, this sort of tension between the local and um, then the dynastic. Okay, so with the Taiping, commemoration of the dynasty's dead, as you put it in the book, becomes a local. Effort, A local project. And what's happening is at the same time, people are seeking imperial sanction for these efforts. But at the same time, they're deploying Qing institutions to their own purposes. And this is happening in the context of diminishing state authority and increasing local power. So can you talk about that relationship, this sort of this co-constitution, but also tension between the dynastic and the local in terms of commemoration of the dead? I think you've just done a wonderful job summarizing it. Actually, like, so some ways that you think. Um, uh, what What do you think is really important about um, what's happening in this chapter for you that really sticks out? Well, I, you know, I think in in some ways it it, it gives.
0: I think historians have understood for a while, at least since uh, since Mary Rankin's work on um, the the elites of Zhejiang, that that post the formation of post-Typing elite organizations to carry out some of the functions formerly carried out by government, we've known that we've thought in terms of the devolution of state authority onto local managerial elites. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book is to show the ways in which these rationalizing local managerial elites have religious lives and respond in ways that I think we can think of as sort of religiously as religious and emotional but also thinking in terms of the ways in which the the very tasks caused by or the the tasks that were needed in the very particular context of the war like burying and commemorating the dead devolved onto local elites but <laughs> again um, this this is not an opposite we want we, we've tended to want to think of this as state society oppositional relationships but I think of them as kind of both symbiotic and intention so they're in some ways making use of dynastic institutions to their own particular local purposes mm-hmm. and so we need to see it in in, in both contexts, and we need to see the ways in which the dynasty remain the dynasty and the emperor remain powerful sense powerful sources of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. They are imagined as being necessary to the function of local society. It's an, at the same time they they don't in, they they um. They, they are Im, 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 imaginatively essential, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an oppo- It's not that they're dissenting, but they are not using those institutions in quite exactly the ways in which they were intended when cre- when when they were set up by the dynasty in the in the in the 18th century.
1: So how does this um because part one of the among the many things that are. It, wonderful about the book. One of the really interesting things we've talked about is the range of sources. Mm -hmm. And you talk here um, not just about now textual sources or textual monuments, but about built structures. Yes. So how does this um, kind of maybe co-production or tension play out in the terms of built structures in this book? Oh wow. Shrines. you know that's that 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 would take a
0: long time to answer, I right. think.
1: So you you use a particular example here of a manifest loyalty shrine, sure, Joe. So maybe we can talk about that example mm-hmm. a little bit, or um, in in particular. As I take a sip of water, what went into if I were um, so? For example, I'm in Hangzhou and I want to build a manifest loyalty shrine. Mm-hmm. What do I do? Well, you need to work cooperatively with the magistrate,
0: so you need permission mm-hmm. from the magistrate in order to do so. It, okay, the the institutionally these relationships, the the manifest loyalty shrine is an institution set up mm-hmm. um, to honor the dynasty's dead, and in the chapter I really walk through the kind of codified canonical the the changing um, official line on the. The, the structure and function of these manifest loyalty shrines, and how they move from being a central Beijing institution to being something that is supposed to happen in every administrative center, and how they go from honoring people who supported the dynasty who, who supported the dynasty in the moment of its founding, right? So the military accomplishments of those who were involved in the dynastic founding to something that spreads. Um, and this is r- documentable in in um, in legal texts, um, and it spreads from the center to the provinces. It spread, and 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 the category the dynasty's dead expands from its original military um, military association to being accessible to commoners who die in the name of the dynasty, right? And that happens before these events, but it gets, takes on new meaning and expands exponentially as very large numbers of civilians die in ways that are retrospectively construed as making them qualified for state honors.
1: Right. Again, um, one, in one more way, really kind of building up and transforming through this process the, um, what locality is and who gets to count. Um, Sure. And actually it's, it's,
0: it becomes a kind of three part dynamic between the regional armies that won the war Mm -hmm. who want to build, whose, whose, um, officers then become high ranking officials in Jiangnan after the war, Mm -hmm. during and after the war actually, and who then, um, the, the, the dynasty itself, um, and local elites. And so you see different ways of... You, you see the same types of institutions being deployed to honor different categories of dead. And you can you, you can see some of the ways in which the relationship among the regional armies, the dynasty itself, and the um, local elites... Beca- Emerges out of this conflict in in tension and also as symbiotic.
1: Great. Thank you. So as we come to um, the last, well, not the last chapter, but sort of this framing case chapter, study. the last case study, as you've mentioned before, the structure of the book really nicely is kind of um, bounded by these two studies of words, and we've got bodies in the middle. So we've talked about, um, we've talked about these three chapters that take us um, sequentially bodies from bodies and honored bodies, exactly, exactly. And so now we come at the end, um, to, or at least to the last case study, to chapter six, Lost. Uh, or loss. So chapter six focuses on one text, one man's text that honors his murdered mother. Um, this is Zhang Lia and he, re- he produces this text called A Record of 1861, which is a memorial to his mother, which is itself, again, from the perspective of someone who really loves like, texts and sources, a really fascinating document or series of documents. You talk about this in terms of uh, a book of fragments, right? Mm-hmm. So can you just d- Explain this this guy in this text for us. Um, what's all What's going on here, and um, what's exciting to you about this text sure. or focuses in, this chapter? Again, the fortuitousness
0: of research. Again, I was in a library. I was at the Stanford East Asia Library. Pulling out whatever I could find that related to this period, record of 1861, sounds kind of like a banal title, but I photocopied the book and it was sort of in a pile on my desk. And after I finished working with the Uchure material um, and had done some of the other, done the commemorative work, I happened to start filing my materials and I picked up that photocopy, not really understanding what it was. And I started reading the introduction, and it really kind of made my hair stand up. I mean, it it's such a powerful piece, and it opens in a really powerful way. I mean, basically, this adult man writing about how he can't let go of his memories, how he is haunted. And I mean, he, he, I'm paraphrasing because I can't access the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of it's really nice that the, that the dynasty has chosen to honor my mother, but her sons and grandsons feel a pain that can never be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And so I started just translating the text and trying to figure out what it was, which is, it, it doesn't really match our standard generic catalog of what something might be. Um, it includes both the official documents and materials related to the dynastic honors bestowed on his mother it also includes his mother's story culminating with her death and it repeatedly comes back to that moment of death Mm -hmm. each with a slightly different valence there's a section on the time of her death there's a an entry on the place of her death there's a list of um some bestowed, bestowed lessons to her descendants that combines very particular memories like of being held by his mother as a toddler and being called by his baby name or lying across his mother's lap and having her drip food and wine in. And so it just, it was... It, the combination of the formal and the informal, the fragmentary, and
1: especially the
0: sensory. The, can can right? you talk
1: about that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, because for me, um, or I'll, I'll jump in here and just mark the fact that that was really striking to me as well. Because she's, she's smoking a pipe. He talks about the pop marks on, on her, her face. face. The things that make her, you know, on the one hand,
0: he's very, he talks about the things that make her legible as a moral being, Mm -hmm. but he also talks about the very particular and textural feelings and attributes that make her an individual Mm -hmm. and the things that for him marked his relationship. And they're always, they're always relayed in almost photographic Mm -hmm. moments, not a narrative it really, I mean, when we think back on our own childhoods, it is through that moment looking out the window. And you don't necessarily have a handle on the context, but you remember the first time you saw a rainbow out the window and you remember where you were and you felt, you know, that kind of immediacy. And so he really captures the, 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 the tactile Aspects of their relationship, and it's so it's a really hair raising text because you read it with an awareness of how special she was to him, and there are also really creepy moments in the text.
1: When his sister possesses the concubine, yeah, his, his dad, dead sister. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a
0: he is a very small boy, and he witnesses his mother's death, and is. Mister, somehow rescued by a family servant and, and, and carried across rural Zhejiang. And he describes what it was like to walk and see and how they ate. And he then, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly powerful Taxi's then somehow reconnected with his father and ends up in Guangzhou, and one and oh, and one of the things that's so tactile is he he he. A lot of his memory resides in the fact that he had a skin ailment as a child, and he picks his scabs. And his mother told him his scabs were special. And he, his sister used to scratch him in a particular way. So he he's in Guangzhou, and suddenly oh and. I have to. Another key piece of information is that his his siblings are taken away. His mother is murdered, and his siblings taken away, and he doesn't know what's become of them. And he's in Guangzhou, and his the spirit of his sister starts speaking, or he apprehends the spirit of his sister speaking through his father's concubine, and he knows it's her because of the particular way that she picks his scabs for him. Right. And he and, and she and the voice of his sister tells the family that she died an honorable death. So it's, it's the, the the spirit speaking becomes a conduit for asserting the morality of the sister, but on the other hand you feel it in a very kind of human and tactile.
1: Way. I'm getting chills. I'm, I'm know. imagining this the, the scene. The
0: in this scene. Yeah. And there there are several moments in the story where he describes seeing the face of his mother or the form of his mother um, on you know, superimposed on the servants or on his wife and a servant who remembered his mother um, reinforces the fact that indeed his wife looks more like his mother than the official portrait of his mother that his father made for her, for, 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 for in her honor and also the recovery of the mother's body so that she can be properly buried again through divine intervention. And yeah, I mean, there were so many moments in that, in that, that were, and that, for me, what was so powerful is the, the, the kind of juxtaposition of the, the formal and official, the patriarchal and the informal, the, right the informal mm-hmm. the personal the individual intimate. the intimate so it's it's it they're not exclusive right. but in, on the other hand you can you you, you you can feel the different registers of meaning associated with with these these categories that we think of as somehow incompatible
1: right and it's also and as we come to the um, to the kind of conclusion of our conversation as a way of um, framing the book, there's this really beautiful arc that takes us from um, one context in which um, there's you know one person's writing, and we see writing about bodies. It takes us through then um, a story about uh, that brings us into the history of and with bodies in different ways and different registers. So that by the time we get to this last case study, um, which is also about you know a text about bodies in the Taiping, these are now very different ways of apprehending mm-hmm. and writing about. And there's this kind of Increasing intimacy and materiality that really creates this really wonderful arc, I think in terms of the reading process And actually
0: in terms of the research process um, I I presented the work on Zhang Guanglia and one of my graduate students said, well, how do we know that he existed? Hmm. Other than in the story he told about his himself and his mother, how do we find out that he really existed? And I puzzled over that for a long time, Hmm. How do we know? that a person is real or that their experience is real. And by fortuitous chance, our school library acquired the Shenbao, Bao, the Chinese newspaper keyword searchable database. Mm-hmm. And I typed in his name and out popped two articles by him and three places where his name got mentioned. And so I was able to kind of put together more of a, bi- biographical understanding of of who he was.
1: That's great and and that also lets me mention a really nice segue that the last chapter endings, we won't um, talk about it purely in the interest of time but it does talk about the importance of sources like the Shenbao, like newspapers and also brings um, sort of to a conclusion a discussion of other really important sources, many of which we've talked about in different ways over the course of our conversation for not just understanding but revisioning um, and re-conceptualizing um, and re-encountering this period. And actually, it's interesting
0: because the, these media like the Shenbao, Bao, um, like newspapers, like published memoirs, like lithography in Shanghai, be, not only produce sources for us and new ways of apprehending these events for us, but I think they also produced new ways of understanding and processing experience for people who lived those experiences in the past. Certainly, the production and circulation of knowledge about these events shaped the way people understood what they had experienced and then shaped the way that these events were remembered. For example, the construction of shrines and the editing of martyrologies reframed these events as events of... in in official terms as good guys and bad guys, right? With the Qing as the good guys and the Taiping as the bad guys, and that gets reversed um, as the dynasty comes to an end and actually fuels some of the anti-dynastic rage with images of the anti-dynastic activism of the Taiping. Um, But also these kinds of local... Experiences are there for us to find as we re-encounter the stories through through, through these primary source texts in, that circulated in new media and, and, and new ways of, of documenting past experience, personal experience.
1: So Toby, thank you. Um, we've taken up, or I've taken up a lot of your time already. Uh, there's The book is extraordinarily rich, and we've only barely scratched the surface. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and um, p- perhaps particularly for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? Anything that sort of is seems really important, but that, that you want to mention, that, but that we didn't have time for?
0: No, I mean, I think you've done a really good job of drawing out, both the experience of writing the book and what's actually in it. So thank you very much and, for your time.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. And I hope um, listeners will go and read the book because as I hope is abundantly clear, it's a fabulous book. At least I think it's fabulous. Thank you. And so now that the book is out, congratulations on it. Um, are there any, what, basically what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently um, inspiring you? Can you imagine um, where you want to go next? Well, you know, I... It's hard to say. I think
0: that in terms of lucent, there are a couple of little pieces that are still haunting me from the book. One is I'm really still very fascinated by Vicuay, the author of A History of Pain, um, who wrote this very dramatic memoir of his experience as a typing captive and the juxtaposition of his, the, so he he traveled around the world to go to the Philadelphia Expo in 1876 and returns and writes a memoir of his experiences in, of his journey to the West. And then he writes this memoir of his experience three years as a Taiping captive. And the juxtaposition of those two texts it still fascinates me. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that mm-hmm. and what light that will shed on his autobiography of his experience as a Taiping captive but I'm interested in that. Maybe it's something that's that's accessible to a wider range of, of readers um, and for what it says about the 19th century moment and the con- confluence mm-hmm. of different sets of events um, or events that we tend to think of as different sets of events. Um, and then I've been, I was asked to do um, an article on or asked to do a talk on gardens as social spaces mm-hmm. and sort of thinking about um, Gardens during the Taiping Rebellion, and so at least an article-length project. And one of the the, the, the interesting things that, that 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 ends up in in that article would be one is the um, the ways in which um, gardens become a site for for, for talking about mother son relationships, um, which was again a surprising finding. And we see that John Guangliet builds a garden to commemorate his mother as one of in addition to the text, he also builds and loses a garden. Um, But also a a, a guy in Yangzhou um, has a painting made of his mother's lost garden Mm -hmm. um, as a way of consoling and comforting her for her loss. Um, So this idea of garden as grand gesture of filial piety. I'm waiting for my son to build me my garden. Um, (laughs) And sort of gardens as sites of loss, commemoration, thinking about gardens as property. Um, and I just published an article about a, 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 a primary sort of one of these little memoirs that I cited in the book, but again, it like lingered in my mind um, about a, a grain merchant in Hefei who documents his sort of spatial trajectories through the city, imagining his own suicide. Wow. Um, and I just published that in frontiers of history in China uh, in December. Um, so little bits and pieces, but I think I'm still really interested in, again, this dynamic of material, object and text
1: and,
0: yeah. and, and, and accessing lived experience through, through, through different literary genres. Yeah.
1: Well, sounds great. And thank you again, Toby. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations again. on the Thank book. you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.